gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, we've been really firing on all cylinders this week, so come check us out. And um, um, and I'm super grateful to all the feedback I got from the solo Remnant from last week. I'll, I'll say something more about that at the end. But let's just get started. Um, since impeachment is in the air again, which no one really sort of thought was going to happen. I mean, it, impeachments are only supposed to come around at least on the cycle of cicadas. Um, not perennial flowers, never mind uh, weeds, but we're here again. So uh, we decided to have one of the one of the the foremost lawyer historian guys around, um, Keith Whittington. Keith, great to have you here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, so uh, because as you can tell, I was fumbling about what your title was and all that kind of stuff. Tell people who you are, like what's your title and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, so I am the uh, William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University. Any relation to the to the fun Cromwell? Uh, you know, not to my knowledge, um, but I'm not sure. So apparently William Nelson Cromwell was a... Uh, lawyer to the robber barons uh, in the Gilded Age, and then uh, left a bunch of uh, endowed faculty chairs at various places. Um, so, you know, I, I at least, uh, if I can't claim uh, anything related to uh, the original Cromwell, I can at least claim a relationship to the robber barons. Okay, so uh, we will discuss this on another podcast, but just for the record, <laughs> I do not believe that they were robber barons. The robber baron epithet was basically invented in the 1930s to delegitimize 19th century Manchester liberalism. But we'll have that conversation for another day. I, I'm with um, you. It's ironic square quotes around uh, Robert Barron's. Yeah. It's sort of like <laughs> Neocon, right? Neocon was like an epithet and then they you kind of own it. So you got to appropriate it. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> if you're just doing it as a, as a matter of identifying, you know, a, a certain class of people, I get it. But, uh, and, um, okay. So, why don't we do some just quick level setting? Um, sure. What did you make, you know, primarily through the prism of, I mean, you can do as much punditry as you like, but primarily through the prism of your professional expertise, what did you make just in broad terms about what happened on January 6th? Oh, wow. It was uh, January 6th was terrible. Uh, it's the whole post-election uh, process has been pretty horrifying. And I've uh, been sort of uh, uh, increasingly enraged about it. Um, uh, I did not expect uh, the kind of thing to happen January 6th, in part because I guess I would have assumed that there would be sufficient security um, to deter that kind of uh, storming of the Capitol. Uh, but, uh, it's just an extraordinarily dark day for American democracy. Um, I am appalled by the extent to which, uh, Republicans continue to want to excuse it, um, and accept it and, and sweep it under the rug, um, which I, I would not have guessed that would happen either, um, and, uh, you know, of course, the, the role of the president uh, and supporters of the president in leading to those events um, is terrible. And, of course, the more news has come out since January 6th, the worse it looks, right? And so uh, when it first started, um, and I don't know exactly when you got in the plane, so exactly how much of it you caught <laughs> in the process, right? But when it first started, it looked like, okay, we got some pushing and shoving 
uh, sort of near the outer barricades. And, you know, this kind of thing appears to be what we do these days uh, with protests. And so, um, you know, maybe no big deal. Uh, but um, obviously the police were overwhelmed as more and more video comes out, not, not to mention the stuff that was obvious from that day itself, just the more horrifying the whole thing uh, looks. Um, so it could have been um, uh, truly terrible. Um, people, uh, people did die, um, but you could imagine a lot more people uh, dying um, under, under those circumstances. Um, yeah, it's kind of, I mean, not funny, haha, but it's, weird that 9-11 was one of those events that I'm not saying it became okay over time, but it became in some ways less terrible because fewer people died. I mean, we really thought that that a lot more than 2,800, 2,900, whatever the number was, were going to die when those buildings came down. And and the media basically stopped running the horrible pictures of people jumping yeah. off of buildings, you know, all, all that. This is one of these rare calamitous events that seem that gets worse the more you look at it in the rearview mirror, which is it's kind of new. I mean, I don't want to get all Marshall McLuhan, but it's kind of just it's a weird thing, you know. Um, so I have this column which you haven't seen yet because the LA Times and in its infinite wisdom hasn't put up. And I know that normally you're like a monkey in a cocaine study trying to refresh to get that column. Absolutely. But, um, uh, so here's how I kind of see it. Um, and I had this argument with Hugh Hewitt this morning on the radio. The Trump's defenders is probably a little too uh, harsh, given the circumstances on this, at least the ones I'm talking about. But the, some of the minimizers about this, they want to focus on the idea that Trump didn't actually incite violence. Right. And that um, and there's also a lot of hand waving about First Amendment stuff, which I want to talk to you about because it, yep. it baffles me. But uh, they say he didn't incite violence. And so therefore, um, uh, it's not, a, it's, it, we shouldn't impeach him for it. And so here's how I view it. If you try to rob a bank and, um, you don't want to hurt anybody, you don't want to shoot the tellers or anything like that. And, but then the security guard draws on you or someone has a heart attack or any of these kinds of things. Sure. You are more liable in terms of like uh, with negligent homicide or, you know, foreseeable, right. you know, stuff so that you will get a harsher penalty when there's violence, when there's not violence. My view is, is that for with with great premeditation going back a long ways, Donald Trump tried to steal an electric, what Fiona Hill yep. calls a self-coup, right? right? He laid the groundwork by saying he wasn't going to accept the results of the election until he found out what the results of the election were. Starting on election night, he declared the election was stolen before he acquired any of this bogus evidence. And then he tried all these different avenues of weird games with electors and courts. And when all that failed, he tried to use a crowd to intimidate the vice president of the United States and Congress to do right. something that was explicitly unconstitutional. And that to me is bad enough. But the fact that the people died, a cop was beaten to death right. with a fire extinguisher and all that makes it all the worse. But even if the crowd were peaceful, yes, it still to me would be an impeachable act. What, what do you think about all that? No, I think that's totally right. I mean, uh, um, uh, in some ways, I think I minimized it in my own head for quite some time after the election, in part because the uh, claims about how the election had been uh, stolen uh, were so outrageous uh, and obviously dumb that it was hard to take them very seriously. And so it just seemed like an extraordinarily cynical 
uh, ploy to um, uh, boost Trump's ego and provide a fig leaf of cover for people to continue to complain about it. I think one thing that has became increasingly clear was the extent to which a lot of other people were willing to uh, play into that. Um, And I think one thing that's become very apparent since uh, January 6th in a way that I just didn't fully appreciate was just how many people actually believed it. Um, And so at one level, it's understandable that if you sincerely and genuinely thought um, that um, all kinds of federal elections were being stolen, including the presidential election, uh, you would be outraged, uh, maybe outraged enough that you would want to march on the Capitol. Um, yeah. it's in, but in the context in which this is an absurd claim uh, is, is what makes it particularly terrible. And of course, you know, Trump is just playing with fire by uh, building up that kind of paranoia and fear among people about what's going on playing footsie with mob violence, which he has done uh, since the days of of his first 2016 presidential campaign. Um, And so, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, this is what happened. But I I agree. I think I think the stuff he was doing between uh, Election Day, November uh, and what happened on January 6th was all um, uh, contributing to what eventually happened and all ultimately intolerable and and impeachable in itself. uh, the phone call with the Georgia Secretary of State, um, I think, is is obviously uh, impeachable on its own, even if it hadn't led to the kinds of events that we eventually um, uh, saw. Um, so, as with as usual with Trump, um, you have a cornucopia of impeachable offenses, um, and you get to uh, choose which ones you find most exciting and that you want to run with. Okay, we're going to get back to impeachment in a second, but I want to run through some other stuff first. So, first of all, yeah, I mean, like if someone use some deep fake video or some Photoshop thing and convinced me that my daughter was in some tank running out of oxygen. And unless I went and killed somebody, uh, she would die. I, you know, whatever my legal culpability is, the person who convinced me of that lie is on the hook for something. And that's what Donald Trump did. He convinced, you know, people say, oh, the millions of people sincerely believe this. Well, first of all, a little shame on them for believing it, but a lot of shame on the people who had convinced them of it, right? Um, but so one of the things I want to ask about is, so let's assume there was fraud, okay? Uh, significant fraud, just for the sake of argument, just in Pennsylvania. But the state legislature certifies the results regardless. Right, right. Um, my understanding is that's it. Right. So like even if you could prove there was fraud, which they haven't, if Pennsylvania set only one sent only one set of certified electors to Congress, Congress does Congress have the ability to question the legitimacy of those if there is no other set? No, I don't think so. Right. I mean, so if you only have one set of electors, there's no option for uh, Congress, let alone the vice president acting on his own to reject those electors or send them back for the state to decertify them or pick a different slate um, or anything like this. I have a long piece um, in uh, Lawfare um, on the Electoral Count uh, process and the Electoral Count Act, trying to walk through the kinds of claims that uh, members of the House representative were making, that Cruz was making, that the president was making on behalf of Pence. Um, and I think they're just all wrong. It's, it, it, we'd be in a different situation if um, states genuinely couldn't certify a set of electors or they somehow wound up sending two uh, sets um, of electors. 
Um, but again, this is part of the outrageousness of what um, the Trump campaign was doing of putting up these fraudulent alternative sets of electors that they had orchestrated with, I've got a couple of state legislators willing to endorse them. And so we'll meet in some room and we'll uh, Xerox some paperwork and send it on uh, to the Secretary of State, which is just crazy. Um, uh, but all in support of uh, fraudulently stealing an election, um, which is just out- outrageous. Um, and so the kinds of, of theories being put forward um, legal arguments being put forward about what it is could, that could happen during the electoral count, even if you thought um, that there was massive electoral fraud, uh, were, were just absurd. Right. I mean, because like if Pennsylvania decided not to have any in-person voting at all, just no election and the legislature wanted to do it themselves and they wanted to decide who gets the electoral votes with a really intense game of trivial pursuit, they could do right. that too, Right. So yeah. it's, my, the point I'm trying to get at is that the states elect a president in a sense. Right. We have decided that the the means by which the states will decide will be one person, one vote elections, but it doesn't have to be that way, right? Or is it, or at least yeah. uh, 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 under the original understanding of the Constitution, I'm curious, the, like the Civil War Amendments or the Civil Rights right. Act of 1964, does that mean that's no longer true? Could a legislature still ignore the voters and just do it on its own? Well, I think there's two complications there, right? So, so one question is whether or not legislatures have to um, uh, authorize voters to make the choice in the first place. Um, legislators have voluntarily chosen to do that since very early in the nation's history, um, but they could choose not to do it that way anymore and could just choose um, presidential electors on their own. Um, but instead, they all have statutes in place um, that authorize the voters uh, to choose um, presidential electors. Moreover, those statutes specify a process for contesting those election results and trying to resolve um, uh, disagreements, uncertainties about um, uh, the election results. Um, there is, I think, a question about uh, if a state legislature was unhappy about how that process played out, uh, what could they then do? Um, in the window of time between the general election and when the presidential electors vote um, uh, to change that? Um, uh, could they simply identify a new set of electors and designate it? Would they have to repeal the earlier statutes uh, in order to put in place presidential electors, which I think is the right answer. I think in, that, in fact, uh, you'd have to uh, pass new legislation uh, that removes the old statutes authorizing the voters to make the choice in order to authorize the legislature to make the choice, which mean, means, for example, the governor could veto um, that that new legislation. No state did anything even vaguely like that. No state um, actually even had a formal vote of the state legislature to appoint new electors uh, in, in this context. Um, and so we just aren't even close to, to the situation in which that might arise. Uh, we got closer in Florida in 2000. Um, uh, where where we had one state involved, it was close. There was ongoing contestation recounts occurring, and the state legislature started making noise um, about uh, inter- intervening in that in that case. But here, uh, you didn't you didn't get anything like that. Okay, so um, I'm I'm just holding off talking about the impeachment stuff because you want to mm-hmm. save the the Bafo box office, you know, kind of sure. thing. For later you mean the, the Electoral Count Act is not the Bafo box office? <laughs> um, no, but I, so. Let's say for 2024, right? So you don't have a latches problem or whatever, whatever you yes. 
people with belts call it, you know, and, uh, sorry, it's a very, very, very obscure Lionel Hutz reference. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but I think that's uh, an important issue, right? I mean, the, the latches issue, I mean, there's a reason why courts are trotting that out in that context of saying, look, you could have contested how we were doing the election earlier and you waited too long. And here, I think there are some, uh, there's a, there's a nugget of truth to some of the Republican complaints, um, at this stage to say that, uh, in the context of the pandemic in particular, um, Secretary of States and executive officials, and in some cases, judicial uh, judges, uh, were uh, making some last-minute significant alterations to how we were going to conduct the, leg- the election. Uh, I would have preferred that a lot of those things had been done by the legislature. Um, but it's also true legislatures gave a lot of authority to Secretary of States to make some, some adjustments as well. These are somewhat complicated about how that should have been worked out, but the time to work it out was not after uh, we had certified election results, and it turns out your guy lost. Right. So just for listeners who don't know what latches is, which is a sign that you don't listen to the advisory opinions podcast, because it's all it's basically the latches podcast, as far as I can tell. But um, latches just means you can't moan about unfair rules afterwards. Right. It's it's an assumption of bad faith complaining. Oh, I I didn't know the infield fly rule meant this. That's unfair. Right. You had to do it beforehand. Um, If you had an opportunity to challenge earlier and you refrain from challenging and now people have relied on the result, um, courts generally take the view we shouldn't go back and change it. We can argue about how it ought to be done next time, um, but it's too late to go back and change the old result. Right. And so that's why I brought up latches, because let's assume for 2024, the state of South Carolina, which I believe was the last state not to have elections to pick its electors. Let's say they decided that they wanted to have the legislature picket without it, without voters, right? right? There's plenty of time to debate it. Plenty of time yep. to hear challenges in the courts. You got yep. four years. Um, do you think that would be constitutional these days, given the amount of precedent we have about the voting rights act and, and the civil war amendments and all the rest can't, could we, I'm not advocating this. I'm just curious. <laughs> could we go back to the time where we just didn't have elections and we just had uh, senators, state senators duke it out? Yeah, no, I think you could do that. Um, If you uh, did it ahead of time, particularly if you did it through a statutory process, um, I think some people would argue the legislature could just do it on its own. But I think in this case, it really would require repealing um, existing statutes and replacing them with a new one, specifying that the legislature uh, will will make the choice. Um, And and I think you uh, could go back to to that kind of system um, if you wanted to. uh, the rationale for doing, it, of course, is thin as a policy matter. But I, but I do think there's nothing there's nothing changed about the Constitution. I think that would prohibit uh, states from taking that step if they if they wanted to take it. Okay, uh, I just I was just kind of curious because um, I'm I, I I wish people understood better the idea that the states the fifty states are electing the president and. You know, anyway, it's and of course that's part of what's outrageous about the whole argument that um, uh, Cruz and Hawley and others were making about how do the electoral count is in lots of ways, as well as the Texas lawsuit against Pennsylvania that a bunch of the a tremendous number of the House Republicans uh, signed on to, because the underlying premise of all those things um, is that some national body should be able to override how states are conducting their own elections and and replace it with something different. Um, which just undermines the whole federal assumption that these are independent state elections governed by rules that those particular states uh, want to use. Yeah. So that that Texas lawsuit, which basically said that Texas could go to the Supreme Court and force Pennsylvania to change the results of its election. Right. right. 
Um, could federalism survive that? Uh, you know, it'd make a massive dent, right? I mean, it's, uh, if, because not only would it be the case uh, that really then you're opening the door to any state objecting to uh, at least how federal elections are being conducted uh, in other states and as a consequence dramatically try to uh, rewrite other states' um, election laws. Um, but you could make similar kinds of claims about all kinds of policy issues um, and you would open the door to uh, basically states trying to leverage the U.S. Supreme Court to object to how other states are, are setting environmental policy, setting all kinds of other policy matters. Um, uh, it's it's maybe there are ways of trying to cabin that so it doesn't uh, get quite that sweeping, um, but it would just make an extraordinary dent um, in anything that we would take to uh, resemble federalism. Um, and the Republicans seem to be willy-nilly uh, rushing to embrace exactly that because they happen to think it might be useful to them in this particular context. Yeah, so there, I, I'm, I'm, I'm laying the groundwork, Counselor, because uh, I want to know whether you th- like. Are these points, let me put it this way, if in 2010, yeah. we were discussing all of these <laughs> issues, right, would these points be at all controversial among conservative federal society type legal scholars? This idea of like, if you described as a hypothetical to a federal society audience, the Texas lawsuit, right? Yeah. Um, or what Donald Trump was trying to do with Mike Pence. Right. Would there be anybody in the audience who stands up and say, well, you know, I could actually see it the other way. That actually makes a lot of sense to me or something like that. I don't think so. Right. I mean, I think there'd be uh, I think people would want to know a little bit more about the larger context of the election. So does it look like the 2000 election where we're talking about one state um, that's basically a toss up and, and they are having difficulty certifying their elections? Uh, and it looks like state judges are going haywire in trying to uh uh, tilt the election themselves in a partisan way. Um, but in principle, I think that um, uh, this would be obvious to sort of the conservative legal movement types uh, circa 2010 about um, how these things ought to operate. And moreover, they'd be highly sensitive to all the kinds of uh, concerns one would have about saying um, a vice president gets to throw out um, election results he doesn't like um, or this or uh, Congress can simply override um, how states are doing these things or the U.S. Supreme Court um, ought to intervene to uh, rewrite state election uh, election law uh, because a mother state doesn't like it. Um, uh, that get no traction uh, among conservative lawyers. Um, outside this context where um, some people are invested in uh, Donald Trump winning. And I have to say, though, a lot of conservative lawyers, of course, gave it no traction this time either, right? I mean, it's, um, right. I mean there's a reason why the um, Trump campaign is relying on the good services of Rudy Giuliani and the Kraken, um, uh, because no serious conservative uh, lawyers, the kind of lawyers who were very involved in the 2000 dispute, um, are willing to get involved in this. And so um, I, I think the... Uh, conservative legal movement, federal society types have gotten a lot of bad press over the last uh, few years and particularly over the last uh, few days. Um, but in fact, I think a lot of those uh, lawyers behave fairly well um, uh, during this process. Those are the people who are occupying the, uh, the judicial positions that were uh, universally turning back these cases. Um, they're the lawyers who refused to sign on um, uh, to uh, the Trump campaign's efforts. Uh, the people who behave very badly, uh, for the most part, 
um, are elected politicians um, and some party officials. Um, and, and that's a different set of people. Yeah, no, look, I, I agree with you entirely. You know, David yeah. French wrote a good piece about how the conservative legal movement is, comes out of this as one of the few, you know, entities on the right looking better, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, very few. Uh, but the reason I brought it up is, so what is your theory of, uh, and I know you're not a psychologist, but what is your theory about Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley? Do you think they, they objectively know that they are wrong and they are saying these things anyway? Or do you think it's more complicated than that? Because like, look, uh, like, Louis Gohmert yeah. is, a, is a garden gnome. And like no one expects him to have a, you know, he has a thumbless grasp of the Constitution. Matt Gates is useless. But Ted Cruz and, and Josh Hawley are like mainstream federal society guys. At least they used to be. Right. And right. they are arguing or lady, at the minimum lending aid and comfort to profoundly right. unconstitutional arguments. I think that's right. I mean, they not, so uh, you know, not only are they federal society guys, but but they are sophisticated lawyers um, uh, in a prior life um, before uh, they uh, got into doing what they're what they're doing now. Um, uh, I, I have some sympathy with uh, average consumers of the news who don't know any better, uh, and uh, you tell them a theory, and smart people seem to be endorsing, and they say, oh, "Okay, I guess that's the way it works." Um, that's not true of Holly and Cruz. Uh, they know exactly what they're doing. They know what's a credible legal argument and what's not. Um, Cruz in particular seemed to be wanting to, um, dance a line in which he uh, didn't quite want to give full support to these kind of theories, but didn't quite want to distance himself from it either. Um, he knew what he was doing, uh, in doing that. And he, and he knew how crazy the arguments that were being advanced were. Um, and moreover, they're sophisticated enough political players. They also know how, um, ridiculous the massive fraud in the election um, argument was, such the underlying factual context uh, was was nuts as well. Um, so not only were they not countering those narratives, which they should have been, um, but they were lending them uh, as a support. Um, and it's hard to see it as anything other than a cynical political ploy because they ultimately want to appeal to the base of Trump voters when they run for president in 2024. Okay, so let's move on to the um, the issue of the hour. We're recording this on Tuesday morning. The vote on impeachment in the House, I believe, is going to be tomorrow. Um, first of all, um, um, can a president be impeached if the actual trial goes after uh, he leaves office? Uh, I think you can. Um, uh, the Constitution is not terribly clear um, on on this point. Um, and obviously, people think of uh, removal as the purpose of impeachment, and removal becomes irrelevant once the officials already um, left office. Um, but um, uh, it's also true that, that the text doesn't rule it out. Um, that there are other things to be accomplished with impeachment that where such that it makes sense to continue to have a trial even after an official has left office. Um, several of the state constitutions allowed for um, uh, imp- explicitly allowed for impeachments after an official left office. Um, and some of the states um, required that impeachments have to occur after people leave office. You can't impeach during uh, their office holding. So Virginia, uh, the early constitution didn't allow you to impeach the governor while he was still in office, but instead uh, required that you wait till he had left office in order to do it, which is emphasizing... 
Well, it emphasizes the same point, in part because they understand impeachments, um, especially in those early days, as in part a way of kind of auditing the record of what these officials had done. Um, and so uh, we think of that as being less necessary. We have so many oversight hearings and the like um, to sort of constantly be monitoring what officials are doing. But but one way of thinking about impeachments from the perspective of sort of the founding generation is there's sort of an oversight hearing on steroids um, to be able to audit what it is that an official is doing to be able to peer into the recesses um, of the executive branch and call them to account um, uh, for their actions. Um, and that's still useful, um, even after people um, have, have left office in order to reveal uh, what they've done and condemn it. Um, and of course, also in the context of the federal constitution, as well as some of the state constitutions, there's the option of disqualifying people uh, from future office, and that's still a live consideration even after people left. Um, and moreover, um, the Senate has had uh, impeachment trials um, after, or eighth impeachment trial after um, uh, uh, an official resigned. Um, uh, so William Belknap, who was a cabinet secretary after the Civil War, uh, was impeached for corruption by the House. Uh, he immediately resigned in order to avoid a Senate impeachment trial. Um, and the Senate went ahead with it anyway um, uh, in his case. Um, usually the Senate lets it go uh, when an official uh, resigns because the primary thing you're trying to accomplish has already been accomplished. Um, but in his case, they wanted to make an example of him, um, uh, that corruption's a bad thing. Um, and so they wanted to proceed. Um, there was a motion made um, uh, that the Senate wound up debating extensively um, as to whether or not you could continue uh, the trial in the case of an official who had resigned. Um, and a majority of the Senate decided they had jurisdiction and could continue. Um, now, it turns out it was very hard to convict. They didn't convict in that situation, in part because some of the senators still weren't convinced um, that they should have held the trial at all. I think that would still be the case in Trump's case as well. It might be hard to actually get a conviction um, because of these kinds of doubts. Um, but I really don't think senators should have doubts. Um, I think they should be comfortable with the idea that impeachment still serve a purpose and impeachment trials still serve a purpose. And it's consistent with the Constitution uh, to do it even after the president's left office. So. Um, and I apologize for not knowing this, uh, but like, are you an originalist? Are you a textual? Like what, which of all these different, you know, uh, various tribes do you ascribe yourself to? Uh, so I'm an originalist. Um, uh, a good chunk of my work has been about, uh, originalism. Um, I actually sort of simultaneously became interested in both originalism and impeachments, uh, when I was working on my dissertation. So I've been writing about both those things for a long time. Um, I thought the impeachment stuff would be immediately irrelevant after I first looked at it and thought maybe the originalism stuff would be more relevant later. Uh, but weirdly, it turns out they both remain relevant. But so, I, I, I mean, the reason I ask is it seems to me, I know there are different flavors of originalists and right, textualists right. and blah, 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 blah. But it seems to me that that one could make a case, and maybe one could make a counter case too, both from originalism that, which and I didn't know this about all the, the, these state constitutions that had provisions for impeaching, never mind requiring impeaching right. after they left office, that that this understanding that impeachment was this audit of behavior right. that could occur after you left office, to me, that kind of settles the issue, right? I mean, because yeah. at the time, if, if that was just widely understood to be part of what an impeachment was, um, then... Uh, to say that that was never the intent of the founding fathers uh, doesn't really fly unless there's something in the constitutional convention where they considered 
this question and rejected it, right? And it, was there anything right. like that? No, there's nothing in the convention where they talk about this one way or another. They're, they're, it's clear that their concern in making sure they incorporate an impeachment power into uh, the text of the Constitution is about removal. Um, uh, part of their concern is, look, we're going to give um, the president a four-year term extraordinarily long in the context of the founding era where most uh, government officials have one-year terms. Um, so they're thinking we're going to create this very powerful government official. We're going to give him a very long term. Um, we need some mechanism to remove him in the meantime if something goes terribly wrong. Um, and so that's very much front and center of what they're thinking about. They don't talk very much about um, other considerations, including these kind of considerations that might lead you um, to want to uh, impeach after the fact. Um, you know, there, there is an, a question about the fact that the state that some state constitutions allowed um, impeachments um, after the officer had left, um, and they did so explicitly. So, what should we make of the fact the U.S. Constitution doesn't say that explicitly? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, is the silence um, uh, suggestive um, uh, that is not included? Um, I think that's probably not right. Um, the Constitution is very spare in what it says about the impeachment power. It gives uh, the House the sole power of impeachment. Um, and then the question is, well, what did they think of when they said, you have the power of impeachment? Um, and I think given this sort of state context and background English context, this goes along with what it means to say you have the power of impeachment. And part of that means you get to uh, impeach even after the fact. Um uh, Judge Ludig um, has recently uh, said some things on Twitter suggesting he thinks the text um, excludes this possibility. Um, I think he would point um, to uh, where the Constitution says what happens to you uh, when you've been impeached and convicted, which is that you'll be immediately uh, removed um, as well as potentially disqualified from office. Um, but I don't think that language um, uh uh, limits the case to situations where it's possible to remove somebody. It merely says that if you do convict somebody, first thing that happens is that person gets removed. Um, um, and uh, likewise, I think the text is a little unclear about um, this question of uh, can you impeach former officers? So I think one thing he would point to about the text is it says uh, the president, vice presidents, and other officers uh, uh uh, shall be uh, removed immediately upon conviction. Um, and that may suggest, well, if we're talking about officers, we're only talking about current officers. Um, but again, I think in the time period, um, it would have been familiar to them about how they used language uh, to think when they're talking about officers, they include former officers in, in that category. People who have held this kind of office um, are, are impeachable. I think there's a very high bar. We shouldn't want to rush into doing this very often, right? It can set a very bad precedent and can lead to some pretty bad results. Um, but there are circumstances when it might be justifiable. And this, I think, seems like one of them. Um, so again, I had this argument with, and he quoted uh, Ludig, um, who Byron York did an interview with. Everybody will. Yeah. And, um, uh, and so I made the point on Twitter with Byron and, and Hewitt is that, okay, so first of all, my own view is this is a political process. Congress can impeach anyway. It's, it's sort of like the old thing about how a grand jury can indict a ham sandwich. Congress can impeach for whatever reasons you get a majority to impeach for. And there's no way under normal circumstances, at least, the Supreme Court is going to weigh in on this purely congressional power and prerogative, right? And, um, and the response to this is that, uh, to that, it was apparently from Ludig was 
this point, not responding to me, yeah. was that, um, no, this really does get to a core question about government service or something along those lines. And he yeah. thinks the Supreme Court would weigh in. I'm very skeptical about that. Right. But um, uh, but let's say that that's, well, do you think right. it's true? Do you think that the Supreme Court would want to get involved in this question? So I have been um, extremely critical of the idea that the Supreme Court will get involved in impeachment matters in general. I wrote a fair amount about this when Alan Dershowitz was arguing um, uh, during the first impeachment process um, that one might expect the court to get involved. The court has said previously um, that in general impeachments are uh, political questions. They've been uh, handed off to a specific um, different branch um, of the government to uh, resolve these things and courts should stay out. And the courts emphasized the idea uh, that uh, it would be very problematic um, if the House uh, were to impeach somebody and, say, the president in particular, um, if the House were to impeach a president and the Senate were to convict and remove them, and then the court somehow cast doubt on whether or not the president had actually been removed. So we had a period of uncertainty about who was actually president of the United States. In this context, though, that concern is significantly lessened, right? And so we already know, we, no matter what happens to Trump, uh, we know that there's not going to be uncertainty about who's president of the United States. It'll be Joe Biden. Um, and so maybe that opens the door to thinking the courts could get a little more involved. Moreover, there's a purely jurisdictional question here that doesn't go to the core um, of what uh, the impeachment power looks like. For example, what counts as high crimes and misdemeanors, which is what Dershowitz really thought uh, the court ought to weigh in on. Um, so imagine, for example, a different case. So not um, this this context, but instead um, the House tried to impeach somebody who had never been an officer um, of the United States. So the House just decided to impeach me um, and and send uh, and send uh, those articles of impeachment uh, to the Senate, and they held a trial and convicted me, and then disqualified me from holding any future uh, federal office. Um, you might imagine not only is that an abuse of the impeachment power, which it clearly is, um, but in fact, it's not even credible as being within the uh, scope of the impeachment power as exercised. Um, it raises fewer of the difficulties the court was concerned about, about their intervention, um, and that kind of egregious violation of the Constitution by using the impeachment power that way might tempt the court to uh, become involved. Um but again, my my inclination is to think that the court would stay out of the Trump case. Um, I think they would think it's a political question, even in this context. Um, uh, and of course, I also think that Trump is impeachable and such that even if the court got involved, the correct answer is this, the House and Senate have the power to impeach him and convict him in this context. Um, now, my very tenuous understanding is that... Um, you have to have a separate vote about barring from public office in the future, yep. right? Yep. Now, is it true that you can't have such a vote without the context of impeachment? Because otherwise it would be a bill of attainder or something like that. Right. And if right. so, why don't you explain what a bill of attainder is? Sure. So the, so the way this process works about disqualification is the House has to ask for it. Um, so it has to be included in the uh, articles of impeachment as part of the ask. And then after the Senate convicts, um, uh, somebody for high crimes and misdemeanor, then they take a separate vote um, uh, for whether or not to disqualify from office. And that second vote is is simple majority. Um, so it doesn't need as big of a majority as it does to convict. But you can't get to the vote to disqualify without the, without the conviction. 
Um, Bill of Attainder in general is, is barred by the Constitution, um, and the concern here is with the legislature um, directly imposing punishment on individuals. Um, and so one kind of abuse that has happened uh, in history um, uh, that the founders were concerned about um, is legislatures um, acting as if they were courts um, and uh, imposing um, on their own authority um, punishments to individuals and the framers instead wanted to emphasize that, look, if you're going to impose punishments on people, it has to go through a judicial process. Um, impeachment is a quasi-judicial process. And so even though the punishments are extremely narrow in that context, um, because all you can do is remove somebody and disqualify them from office, um, nonetheless, it satisfies some of that concern to say, well, look, before you impose any kind of punishment, even this kind of purely political punishment, you got to go through a process, including a process that has a trial-like quality um, in, in the Senate. And so to short-circuit that, um, uh, I think becomes very troubling, um, certainly subverts the purpose um, of the impeachment clause and the structure of the Constitution. I think that's also relevant to thinking about something people are try now trying to argue about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, um, uh, which uh, we never talk about ever, uh, but suddenly now we want to talk about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Um, the 14th Amendment, of course, being one of the Reconstruction Amendments adopted after the Civil War, and Section 3 specifies that those who have engaged in insurrection against the United States cannot serve uh, in subsequent office unless Congress specifically waives um, the disqualification. So it creates a kind of default disqualification of people who engage in insurrection, uh, an issue that is very much front and center. Um, uh, in the Reconstruction period, um, but but hardly ever even referenced, let alone used uh, since then. Um, some people have suggested, well, if, if people who have engaged in insurrection can be disqualified from office, uh, we should just declare that Trump is engaged in an in insurrection and therefore um, is now disqualified from office. One thing that's not very clear about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, one reason why it's not used very much, besides the fact people don't engage in disqualification that are in insurrection and then run for office, um, is the fact it's not at all clear how we, in fact, identify, well, who counts as having engaged in insurrection um, and what's the mechanism by which we're going to prevent them from holding office um, in, in the future. Um, so trying to use this as an end run to impeachment, I think, is just is really problematic and not supported by the text or the history. I mean, in fairness, during the Civil War, it was kind of easy to identify who was involved in insurrection, right? It's it's since then it's harder, right? Well, even then it was pretty easy. Although, um, uh, you know, there's still questions about fact finding, right? And so, if if um, uh, if somebody uh, who was not so well known, so we're not talking like Jefferson Davis or something, or um, but somebody else who just said, "Well, look, uh, people are accusing me of having." Uh, been a private in the Confederate Army, for example, um, you know, should, is that a problem? Now, actually, that's a little more limited because the Section 3 specifically uh, is limited to people who've already taken a vote in office because they held some prior office. So, yeah, in the, in the Civil War context, um, that the pool of people that it would necessarily apply to was relatively straightforward um, and relatively easy to apply. Um, uh yeah, subsequently it becomes much more complicated to think about, okay, well, who's actually engaged in insurrection um, and who hasn't, especially when we're talking about a context, as we're talking about now with President Trump, for example, somebody who's not been judicially convicted, they have not been charged with insurrection. Um, and so what we just get to say, a majority of Congress gets to just say you've engaged in insurrection and they can say it in this context, uh, who else can they uh, declare has engaged in insurrection? Or people have said nice things about rioting 
um, over the summer um, guilty of insurrection, and Congress could just declare that by majority vote and prevent them, those people from holding a future office. Um, that's not really a path we probably want to go down. What about the dude in buffalo skins and the Viking helmet? Can we, um... <laughs> <laughs> I, so I do think that the book ought to be thrown at these people. Um, and uh, I assume that federal prosecutors will eventually uh, up the ante on what people are going to be charged with. So some of the initial arrests have sort of been limited to things like, you know, unlawfully entering a building kind of things. Um, but I think we ought to be seriously considering uh, seditious conspiracy statutes. Um, I think some of these people probably um, can meet the fact requirements of those statutes, and that carries a very severe um, uh, penalty. That's hard time for a long time in, in federal prison, and, and those people deserve it. Okay, so let's talk about pardons for a second. First sure. of all, presumably President Trump could pardon all of these riders, right? He could, and, and I think actually it's... Uh, I do actually think it's impeachable. Now, of course, you go very broad about what you think is impeachable. You can impeach for whatever yeah. you want. I do want to limit it a little more and, and think that you can't just impeach for everything. Um, uh, but I do well, think I, you I, can... I, 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 let's back yeah. up on that for two seconds. Sure. It, it, we're, we're having an is-ought yes. conversation yes. here. Um, you want to narrow it, but my point is... is right. If no one's going to step in and tell the right. Congress you can't do that, except for like really like impeaching private citizens, right? Right. right. Um, then it's all very nice to talk about what is and isn't impeachable, you know. But at the end of the day, I think the way um, Congress, the way politics works, is it's very difficult to foresee um, impeaching for something that just has no merit to it the political forces against impeachment yeah. are such that it just wouldn't happen um but not only that but so, the bar of conviction is so high i mean I, I actually suspect we would be living in a pretty different constitutional world if the senate could v- convict on civil majorities um uh for example but because the in case of two-thirds majority which almost always means you need to get some bipartisan support in order to do it right um it's really deterred the house from impeaching people um it means you're not going to get convictions um, in the senate in most circumstances um and so even if there was political pressure to um open up very extensively what counts as high crimes and misdemeanors um that that high hurdle of what it takes to get a conviction um, has has reduced that. So as a practical matter, um, uh, I, I think that's right, that, that um, Congress can get away with it if they want to impeach people for whatever they want. Um, and they're not very likely to do it because it's hard to persuade two-thirds of senators to go along with doing that. Um, I do think separately there is an And voters will punish you if you... <laughs> if, but voters will also punish you if you impeach for truly trivial reasons, right? Even in a well, polarized society. So, like, I just think that there are... The way we have our maybe. system set up yeah, well, but so far, that's been the case. So far, that's um, been the case, but I do think we're living in a different world now, right? So so if you, um, so, so let's lay aside the two-thirds thing and just say, okay, well, mm-hmm. whatever whatever the rule is in the Senate, you actually can get the votes. Um, say the Democrats uh, have massive electoral success, so, so they actually control two-thirds of the votes all by themselves in the Senate. Um I can easily imagine lots of Democratic voters during the course of the Trump administration saying, impeach him for whatever you want. We just got to get this guy out of here. Right. And and I think there are probably uh, people on the right who felt the same way about um, Clinton or Obama, uh, uh, for example. And so 
uh, there, there are better and worse reasons why they might want to do it. But I think a lot of people are just very results oriented um, and they just be very happy um, if the other guy gets tossed and they don't really care about the mechanism. I think really, actually, that's what we're doing now with the 25th Amendment, which I think is totally inappropriate uh, to this circumstance. But people are just say, use whatever you want to get him out of here. We just got to get him out. Um, and, and I suspect people might have the same inclination about the impeachment power if you gave him half a chance. Okay, so I want to come back to the the, yeah, the Viking dude, but yes, um, if you go back and you look at the articles of impeachment with for Andrew Johnson, um, which I'm sure you have done more thoroughly than I, it have. was a whole chapter in my dissertation and my book. So yeah, yeah. So some a couple of the articles or a couple of the parts of it were um, he heaped scorn and opprobrium on the Congress yes. of the United States, and he he put them in dishonor, or whatever, like. The right. idea that like that was once considered an impeachable thing um, yeah. is kind of funny to me, given how right. like every president since has heaped scorn and opprobrium on Congress yeah, yeah, or whatever yeah. the phrase was. But unleashing an actual mob, right? Even even a peaceful, like, just a peaceful right. crowd on yeah, Congress yeah, yeah. takes that a way further. So anyway, if he pardoned the 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 Huns or whatever that, right. you know, the, the real bad actors right. from all of this yeah, or yeah. everybody. Right. Um, that's, you think that's impeachable? I totally think that's impeachable as well as an abuse of the pardon power. Um, uh, I, I think that's a political judgment that Congress could reasonably reach that that's an abuse of the pardon power. And we want to discourage presidents from doing it again in the future. Moreover, I think the possibility that he might do that is a good reason to remove him right away. Um, and so all the people sort of say, well, we can sit back and, and wait on removing him. There's no rush. And, and I cannot fathom why the House has waited as long as they already have uh, to bring articles of impeachment in this context. One of the concerns that he could very easily do all by his lonesome sitting um, himself in the Oval Office is pardon all those people uh, for what they did in the Capitol, which I think would just be a terrible result for the country and encourage even more bad actions uh, down, down the road. Um, okay, I just want to put a fine point on that. Uh, in the last impeachment brouhaha, we heard constantly about how, particularly from people like Dershowitz, that if it wasn't a violation of criminal law, it couldn't be impeachable. It would be totally legal for the president to pardon all these people. Yes. Right. Totally within his lawful authority to pardon all these people. And totally impeachable for him to do it as well. And totally right? impeachable, so, right? Absolutely. So, so the my Venn view, diagram of illegality and impeachability, there's overlap, but yes. it's 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 not complete, right? I think that's absolutely right. And Dershowitz um, does hold, I think, the minority view among scholars who have looked at impeachments. Um, um, about what the purpose of the impeachment power is and how expansive it is. Um, uh, the core concern of the impeachment power is not that uh, presidents and other government officials uh, will com uh, commit actual uh, criminal acts that could result in criminal liability in ordinary courts. Um, the concern is they're engaged in political um, uh, acts that were dangerous to the republic. Um, they could abuse their power in various ways, or they could seize powers they don't actually possess. Um, and those things are also impeachable, um, uh, precisely in order to protect the republic against um, uh, actors who are willing to abuse their power um, or exercise the powers they don't properly have. Um, I, again, that's subject to uh, abuse itself on the part of Congress. Um, it requires a careful judgment to think about when when you actually have an instance of abuse. I'm trying to work on a long 
paper now trying to think through uh, how do we know the difference between the kinds of abuses that ought to be impeachable and the kinds of abuses you live with and try to deal with in other kinds of ways. Um, not every abuse um, necessarily ought to leave, lead to um, impeachment, um, but that's part of the point. Um, of impeachment. And likewise, to take the First Amendment point that you raised earlier, right, that it's, mm-hmm. it's likewise the case that speech that's entirely lawful, not actually subject to um, uh, criminal uh, liability, which I think is probably the case uh, with Trump's speech, although there are people who disagree uh, about whether or not he might be criminally liable uh, for uh, some of his speech in this context. Even that kind of speech is completely impeachable. One thing that Andrew Johnson argued, or Andrew Johnson's lawyers argued in his impeachment trial, uh, was that article that that um, was grounded in speeches that Johnson was giving um, uh, was invalid, and he was protected from it, and he shouldn't be convicted on the basis of it because his speech was protected by the First Amendment. Um, and and I think the majority of Congress would have rejected that kind of argument as saying, look, uh, the fact of the matter is, a president. Um, is not covered by the First Amendment in the same way that he can lawful, he can speak in ways that are totally lawful and yet terribly dangerous and damaging uh, to the republic and as a consequence ought to be uh, dealt with. They had their own ideas about what kind of speech that looked like, but and and there's interesting questions about sort of the bringing Congress into disrepute thing um, as to why they were so worried about it. But it's worth remembering part of what Johnson was doing, right? Johnson was standing out um, on the balcony of the White House and saying, uh, we ought to hang Thaddeus Stevens, the uh, Republican leader in Congress, uh, because he was just as treasonous as Jefferson Davis. Um it turns out no one did that. But if you imagine a mob moving from the White House then down the street to try to find Thaddeus Stevens, uh, we're in a terrible situation, right? And right. in that context, they certainly imagined that was a possibility. Um, the presidents who are willing to say that kind of things uh, was extraordinarily dangerous and ought to be ought to be stopped. Um, and and uh, it's not hard to see why uh, they they might think that um, because the next thing you know, you have people trying to beat their way into the Capitol saying, "Hang Mike Pence." Yeah, I mean, it just seems obvious to me that, again, whether it fits within the four corners of what people normally consider impeachable, but if the president of the United States, forget Trump, just any president of the United States, went on national television and said, we really must purge the society of the Jews. Yeah. Or, um, you know, this country's been taken over by the N-words or something like that. Congress would move really quickly to impeach him, and they might have arguments about how this shows he's not mentally competent, try to do 25th right. Amendment stuff and all the rest, but that's free speech. You're allowed to say things like that, right? Or, you know, you can yeah, frame it absolutely. in a way that falls short of the Brandenburg standard or whatever a lot of stuff is, that would still be impeachable. And no, absolutely. If he was a private citizen, he could totally say that. Unfortunately, I am I am uh, much less optimistic than I used to be about how quickly Congress would impeach uh, sure. and remove, even in those circumstances. But yeah, imagine Trump came out uh, in blackface and, and did a minstrel show. Uh, right. in, in the press office. Imagine he came out in response to one of these uh, videos uh, showing uh, African-Americans uh, being killed. Um, and he came out and said, uh, yeah, it'd be great if we had more of those people. They ought to really learn to stay in their own neighborhoods kind of thing. Right. right. You would hope that Congress move very quickly uh, right. to uh, remove a president who would say such things, um, despite the fact that he was a private citizen and be completely within his rights uh, to say such things. Um, there's a difference between what a private citizen can lawfully say and what a president should say. Um, and and part of the impeachment power is try to patrol those boundaries of what it is a president should be doing. And it, so and just to close the circle, one of the reasons why the only remedies allowed for in the impeachment process yes. are 
removing from office and barring from future office is because it's not a explicitly criminal trial and it would be unconstitutional to have a political trial that didn't that 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 ran over your 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 constitutional rights that sent you to jail or the electric chair or whatever um that would be wrong but since it's just about removing basically a privilege right um you know you have no right to be president past a certain point um that's what impeachment is for so it's a civic yeah. hygiene point right yeah i think we'd have to be thinking about the impeachment process uh, entirely differently if the senate uh, could execute people at the end right. of uh, which you know, Parliament could uh, right. at the end of the process. Um, we'd have to not only be thinking about these kinds of questions about um, well, what's the range of offenses uh, on which you could be impeached, but we'd also have to think more seriously about what the due process requirements are in the midst of that process. And so, uh, one thing I argued in the course of the first impeachment was, for example, the due process requirements in the House are non-existent. The House can impeach um, as quickly as they want to on the basis of as little as they want to. The Senate has more of a responsibility uh, to conduct a trial, um, although I've said in this context, the Senate could do that very, very quickly um, and have a very brief trial in order to get to the to removal when it's obvious to everybody what needs to take place. Um, but you have even more questions about both those halves of that. How's the House conduct itself as well as how the Senate conduct itself? Um, if the end result is not just you might get removed from office or disqualified from future office, um, but you might get thrown in jail or executed as a consequence of, of that kind of action. Um, yeah, so Hugh raised this point in our uh, tete-a-tete um, on the radio, and he was saying how there is a minimum amount of due process required and that the House has to do some fact-finding. And my view was we have enough facts on record and the House and, and the due process, whatever process, you know, as, as my friend Andy McCarthy said recently, <clears throat> we need to remind people that due process means the process that is due. Absolutely. Right? And... Um, uh, and I agree that there is more due process, more process that's due in the Senate, because it says in the Constitution you have to have a trial. Right. But Andy makes this point is that you have the due process in some ways is it's a luxury in the sense that if you have pressing national security concerns. Right. Um, there's very little due process. So like a field trial in right. a war zone is very different than the due process in, you know, in Kentucky on a, right. you know, burglary charge or something. Right. right. And, um, because the paramount point of the, of, of law is to actually protect the United States of America. And you want to have, you want to make allowances for due process when you can afford to do so. And so his hypothetical would be something like, what if we found out that the president of the United States was actively negotiating with the Chinese to deliver secrets and seek asylum and, right. and hand over nuclear codes or whatever, right, right? Right, right, The idea that you would need to wait to do all this fact-gathering, right? If, you, if, if people were persuaded that this actually happened, even taking the risk of later being proven wrong, you would act really quick. You would hope they would act really quickly because it's imperative to get this guy out of the Oval Office tomorrow right right i'm not saying that's what we have now is equivalent to that but this idea that um you can't have an impeachment because there's not enough time left it just it feels like a lot of sort of dilatory lawyer stuff they're just throwing chaff up there to say we really don't want to have trump impeached and so here are the five best reasons we can find off the shelf to say he shouldn't be impeached i mean 
But what, what is the due process that is actually owed? I mean, minimal due process that is owed. Uh, I think the minimal that's owed in the House is nothing, um, and that they can they can do it uh, almost immediately. I think the House could uh, successfully impeach within an hour if they wanted to. Um, and and if we're talking about one of these instances where the president did it in public, um, it's easy to imagine you somebody rises to the House and say, "I will have a motion, a privilege motion. I want to impeach right now on the floor." Um, we all know what happened. Let's take a vote. Um, mm-hmm. And they could do it instantly. The, the challenge for the House is, do they have enough evidence to be able to prosecute in the Senate? I think that's their larger challenge, not what happens in the House. On the Senate side, the process can wait, be wait, minimal. But, you, but, but yeah. don't they have yeah. to at least write out an article of impeachment? I mean, there has to be some they piece of paper. They do, although there have been instances in which the House has voted to impeach and then sent it to a committee and said, okay, now figure out why we impeach this person and draft oh, up okay. an, article of, uh, an article of impeachment that lays out the details. And so they could impeach first and then figure it out later. But ultimately, right, they have to. The thing they have to bring to the Senate is an article of impeachment that lays out a bill of indictment that actually has enough specificity that it's possible for the Senate to know what's being charged. It's possible for the officer to be able to mount a defense. Um, but all the Senate needs to do is provide an opportunity for a defense to be mounted, and that may be very small. And as you say, in some contexts, it absolutely needs to be very small. So imagine one of the things the founders are worried about, right? The president's engaged in active treason. Uh, there's an invading army um, uh, marching uh, across the United States and the president refuses to do anything about it um, because, you know, he's been paid off, uh, uh, for example, um, um, or expects to be installed as king for life when the new army uh, takes over for the United States. Uh, you would want that person out instantly, right? And and, right. This, and the House and the Senate, in fact, could move extraordinarily quickly in getting that done. Um, and so this kind of complaint about, oh, well, you know, this is really slow and isn't the 25th Amendment much faster. This is p- purely a matter of political will. Um, uh, the, I think the House and Senate could have concluded this if they had wanted to. And if, of course, you have to get the votes. And so maybe that's really the obstacle. But if they had wanted to do it, they could do it uh, within hours, um, uh, conclude the whole process from the, from the initial motion to impeach uh, to the uh, conclusion of, of a guilty verdict. Uh, to convict on the other end. Okay, I know this is, this is only slightly outside the realm of the impeachment part of it, but I'm assuming you think that self-pardons could be unconstitutional um, or impeachable, but uh, but are they unconstitutional? Can a president self-pardon? Uh, I, I definitely think they're impeachable. I think they should be impeached uh, if, if the president were to issue a self-pardon. I also think that they're legally invalid. Um, um, and so I think it is a case, um, although I think that is a, diff- a somewhat difficult case, right? The pardon power doesn't include any implicit limitations um, on it. Um, I think that the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department during the Nixon administration issued an opinion saying legal uh, self-pardons would be legally invalid. And they rested on the idea um, of the standard uh, traditional um, uh, legal um, uh, principle um, that you can't be a judge in your own case. Um, I think that's probably the wrong um, principle to apply in this context. The president isn't a judge when he issues a pardon. I think instead it makes more sense to think about conceptually what a pardon is, which is an act of mercy that you give to somebody else. Um, And it doesn't make any sense conceptually to say I I can give an act of mercy to myself. Um, And so, um, uh, so I think there are multiple arguments as to why we wouldn't want to recognize 
uh, self-pardon as within the scope of what it means to say you have a pardon power. Um, and as a consequence, I think if if the president were to issue a self-pardon and then he were to be prosecuted and he were to trot out um, the pardon in order to uh, end the prosecution, a court would have to look at it and say, OK, is this actually a valid pardon? Um, and I think courts would probably conclude that it's that it's not. But it is an open question. Um, has there has there ever been? I mean, obviously, there's never been a self-pardon by a president in the United right. States. Right. But has there ever been something that's analogous to that? That um, I'm not aware. You, uh, well, actually, I take that back. So I, uh, I was about to say I'm not aware there having been one. But I actually my understanding is and I have not looked into it. But my understanding is there was once a territorial governor uh, who pardoned himself. Um, and so uh, at some point in the 19th century. And uh, but but yeah, in the American experience and, and it was never tested. Um, in court either. And so, um, uh, so we don't have much of a, even a judicial ruling, even, even in that kind of context. But to my knowledge, no governor has ever tried to pardon himself, uh, for example, of a regular state. Um, uh, no president obviously has tried to do it. I don't think there's much precedent in uh, English law, um, uh, where, of course, we borrowed the pardon power from um, of an effort to um, self-pardon. So, so my understanding is this would truly be a completely unprecedented and and raise questions for for the first time, but um, I think any court would be very reluctant to it. I know that if I thought I had genuine criminal liability, I would not want to rely on a self pardon uh, to be right. my get out of jail free card. I mean, it seems to me. I mean, I, it seems pretty clear that Trump is not going to resign. Um, but and he's probably burned he really... his bridges with Pence about letting uh, resigning, letting Pence give him the pardon, right? So yeah, well, man, but that's the thing is like, I mean, if he was really primarily concerned about being pardoned for federal crimes, the right, the smart thing to do would be to ask yeah. Pence to do it. But like, like right. I, maybe Pence would keep his word. He'd say, Oh sure. I'll pardon you. you know, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Let me um, show you the door. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we're just about out of time. Um, but you know, one of the concerns that um, a lot of people and again, I think they're pretextual, you know, uh, you know, nearest weapon to hand arguments personally. Um, uh, but one of the arguments that you hear is that it would be a really bad precedent to do snap impeachments. Um, and uh, my own view is that if you can't do snap impeachments, that means within three months of the end of your term, you can get away with anything. Right. Because there isn't time to impeach you, which is also a bad precedent. Right. To me. Yeah. But um, what do you think are the legitimate concerns about about like what what worries you most? I would I, I gather you think he should be impeached, right? Yeah. Um, but what are the things that worry you about in, in the realm of unintended consequences that could go wrong if if this were to actually happen? <sighs> So I don't actually think that there is a great deal of risk of things going wrong beyond um, beyond the risk we already have, uh, which is to say uh, we're in such a uh, polarized environment um, that each side always thinks the other side is abusing their power um, and ought to be impeached. It's striking that um, every president um, since Clinton um, has fostered a cottage industry of people calling for their impeachment. Um, uh, during during their presidencies, I think this is just a symptom of our polarized environment, in which people just really hate the other guys. 
And it's very easy to convince yourself that things that the other guy is doing is, in fact, an abuse of power. It's not just normal politics, but really they're beyond the pale. Um, And so in some ways, I think that risk is with us. I think that's a risk that's intrinsic to the nature of our politics now. I do not actually think that the Trump uh, experience is heightening those risks in any particular way. Um, uh, And I don't think that the um, possibility of a very a quick uh, process um, necessarily heightens those risks either. Again, as you say, the thing to emphasize um, is the context in which it happens, right? And so um, uh, I think it's pretty easy for uh, future Congresses to be able to distinguish between the situation facing us with Trump right now um, and what's likely to face us with a future president, that it's much more the case that in future circumstances, we're going to have time to take more time and build support for it. Um, that in this context, um, given the actions that he took, given the uh, imminent dangers he continues to uh, uh, press for the country, um, that uh, it makes sense to move much, much more quickly. Um, and and if you think that Congress is rushing too much in some future circumstance, the thing to do is not to talk about, well, look, uh, do we have a good precedent for it or not uh, from this second Trump impeachment? But instead to talk about um, what the circumstances are. Um, that we don't need this kind of speed in this circumstance. There's more uncertain fact situations that need to be explored. We haven't yet convinced the public, and so we need to take more time in order to build the case publicly uh, to bring people around. All those are good reasons to have a slower process um, than what we're having now. Um, and and hopefully, just like we haven't seen presidents in the past that need an immediate impeachment, hopefully we will not anytime soon see presidents in the future uh, that need to be impeached very quickly. Um, but, you know, at that level, we might as well say, well, Trump will set a precedent of two impeachment in his presidency as well. And so uh, isn't that some kind of bad precedent that in the future will just be impeaching presidents all the time because, hey, we impeached this one twice. Um, you know, I think it's probably best to think that Trump is unique. Uh, he's a very special case. Uh, and uh, hopefully uh, we will not have other special cases quite like it in the future. Yeah, although that's in some ways the thing that worries me most, right, is that yeah. if one of the things that we have all benefited from greatly is that Donald Trump was actually not very interested in power. Yes. He was interested in the prestige and the celebrity that comes with power. Right. He was right. not very good at being a dictator, you know, and right. he didn't know how to, like, work the mechanisms of government. He didn't know how to, like, get people to preposition people right. to secure the schemes that he wanted to do and all the rest. And so the th- one of the reasons why I think impeachment is necessary is for the next one who comes along, whether yeah. it's, you know, right wing or left wing, who is smart, right? Yeah. I mean, who has the ability to, to game out these things and actually use power well, um, or use power efficiently or yeah. competently, yeah. right? that we don't that we we set the record straight that just because he was an incompetent demagogue in all of this um we are going to foreclose opportunities for competent demagogues in the future and that seems to me the best argument personally i'm not really worried about what trump does with the nuclear codes i don't think that's a problem i don't think you know even i agree with you that it would be very worrisome if he pardoned these guys but i don't i i kind of doubt that he will at least the ones who murdered a cop, right? That's a political problem for him. What worries me is is the point about civic hygiene and and to a certain partisan extent, I really want the Republican Party to go on record saying this was unacceptable for their own 
health, you know, yes. and, um, and which is why, and this is the last point, I'll keep bringing up this Hugh thing, but I right. did it just before I came on yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, You know, if you really think, and I'll, I'll take Hugh at his word, he really thinks impeachment's a bad idea, right? Right. Fine. If you really think impeachment's a bad idea and you're a Republican member of Congress, then you should be screaming from the rooftops, let us censure him instead, right? Let us condemn this and vote on it, and that should be enough. They're not saying that. They nope. basically just don't want to be held accountable for the stuff that they lent aid and comfort to. Um, right. And so then that makes impeachment more necessary to me. If, if they were yeah. willing to show contrition, it'd be a different issue. Right. Now, the deterioration of Congress as an institution has uh, been uh, remarkable and I think is ultimately very dangerous. Uh, this could be a moment of trying to get Congress to gear up and prepare itself for actually being able to defend its institutional interest and defend uh, the American constitutional system against overreaching presidents. They're very out of practice um, at it. Um, but the bumbling way in which they've handled this impeachment, let alone the bumbling way they handled the last impeachment, uh, doesn't give me a lot of hope about how no. Congress is going to behave on these things. Um, I do think that, that uh, you know, we, we got lucky with Trump in the sense that um, he doesn't care about governing and he's very bad at it and he doesn't attract around him uh, people who are very good at it. Um, and so as a consequence, he couldn't do nearly as much damage as he might otherwise do. On the other hand, I think Trump turns out to be an extraordinarily charismatic figure. Um, I don't get it, but, um, uh, but apparently for other people, they see his family charms. Um, and, and so uh, I don't think that Cruz or Hawley have that same kind of charismatic quality to it. And so even people who might be tempted to exercise power in worse ways may not be able to attract the same kind of political support Trump does. Um, but nonetheless, the fact that, that we were willing to elect somebody uh, who was uh, so obviously unfit um, to hold an office of this sort, um, and that the Republican Party um, has proven uh, willing to uh, uh, completely uh, give in and kowtow and embrace this person, even as his unfitness becomes more obvious across his presidency, um, I think is just a very disturbing sign about um, uh, what the future of American politics looks like and the current health of American uh, democracy and constitutionalism. Um, I mean, eventually Trump will be uh, gone, both out of the White House, but also out of our political life. Um, but I think a lot of stuff that's been revealed now doesn't suggest that um, what comes after is going to be um, necessarily all that healthy, healthy and great. So right, what I hear you saying is buy gold. <laughs> yeah, buy, buy, buy gold. Uh, you know, what can I say? We're, we're the remnant fighting for, uh, you know, better times. But, but one thing I worry about is the Republican Party really, really willing to sacrifice its principles on this front, the conservative movement broadly uh, willing to sacrifice its principles on this and embrace uh, really a set of principles that are antithetical to what the conservative movement traditionally stood for. Um, uh, I, I am as depressed about the state of our politics, both because of the things going on on the left and things going on on the right, um, as I've ever been over the course of my lifetime. Um, and so I think it's going to be a very long struggle, um, to get us to a better place. Yeah. I, I wrote a book called Suicide of the West for a reason. And the, and the thing that breaks my heart is that the conservative movement is in really rapid speed creating a whole permission structure and philosophy around a right-wing version of left-wing stuff. We've now got our own identity politics structure. We've got our own version of the living constitution, which is basically, in, at least the progressives with the living constitution, 
they have arguments, right? They've been working right. on this for like a century. Yeah. But the living constitution that the Louis Gohmerts and the Paxtons and these guys embrace basically is just as results oriented, but it's basically just what is good for Trump. And if the conservative movement abandons, you know, limited government, constitutionalism, you know, you know, sort of uh, rule of law, I mean, you can go down a long list of these things, which are just becoming right wing versions of left wing things that we've been criticizing. Then you got no one trying to conserve stuff that's worthy of conserving anymore. Yeah. And, you know, it's very depressing. Yeah, no, I think it is. It's um uh and 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 the Louis Gomer stuff is I think particularly depressing because there there's no credible theory there at all. There's not a worked out sort of elaborate set of principles that also suggest w- what the coherent logic of it is, but also how it's contained uh, within any kind of claim. It's it's purely an effort at gaining p- and con- keeping power, um, and we'll say whatever it takes in order to accomplish that. Um, uh, and that's just extraordinarily disturbing to the extent that that gains real traction among um, uh, elected officials. Um, and so uh, in some ways, I'm a little less disturbed by some of the living constitutionalist kind of arguments that are emerging on the right, the common good constitutionalism mm. uh, kind of stuff, for example, which uh, as an originalist, I find uh, quite wrongheaded. Um, but at least it's a principled argument with actual claims about its attachment to the constitutional system and how to work it out um, down the road. The kind of stuff we were seeing surrounding the election is just a pure will to power. Um, uh, there's no theory there, no attachment to any actual principles, um, uh, there. Um, and, and that's a terrible place to be, uh, for a political system to, uh, take that kind of thing seriously and to have, um, uh, political leaders, elected politicians, um, uh, embracing that and trying to run with it. Um, uh, yeah, it, it is the, I think one of the most calamitous things to emerge out of the Trump um, presidency is is this uh, willingness to say whatever it takes in order to um, hold on to power. Um, and uh, if you need to change it the next day, uh, then you'll just change it. Yeah. I mean, I just, I do love the idea that you, people like you, people you, the professors you learn from going back in the great chain of legal scholarship and constitutional scholarship for like, what, six generations, you all missed, just missed the fact that the founding fathers intended for the vice president of the United States to be able to unilaterally select the next president of the United States based upon his own internal judgment. Like it never came up in the, in the debates in the Federalist Papers or the, in, in, in the Constitutional Convention. You guys just all missed it. And like Louis Gomer is Nick Cage right. from National <laughs> Treasure. And he put a little lemon juice and a blow dryer on the back of the Constitution. And he found out that Mike Pence was actually the most important and powerful guy in American life. I mean, that just, it's, I love the idea of it to laugh, but it's very depressing that smart people have embraced it. You know, there, there's just this one little trick and you can be president for life, <laughs> as, as it turns out. Yeah, there's a story of uh, of a German mathematician who uh, uh, came to the U.S. after World War II and um, uh, and was uh, applying for citizenship and he studied for a citizenship test and, and everything. And he was going to go in and take it. Um, 
And, and he got really worried just as he was about to go in because he thought he had discovered this fatal flaw in the Constitution, how it would lead to a, a dictatorship. <laughs> uh, and, and Albert Einstein, who's one of his friends, said, well, look, don't mention that to the guy when you go in to do the citizenship exam. Uh, keep that to yourself, right? And instead, he winds up mentioning it after all. But no one quite knows what it was he thought he had found, right, about the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> Everybody has sort of this theory, for example, that, that you could do anything through Article 5 constitutional amendments. And so uh, you could completely subvert the Constitution by just adopting amendments that, that uh, did whatever you want, um, declared pre- Trump a president for life. But maybe this was the thing. Maybe he, in fact, realized, <laughs> oh, you know, the vice president could just throw out the ballots and declare who the president is. It's like, well, why didn't he tell us? Right? So, yeah. It would have been so helpful. All right, Keith Whittington, thanks so much for being on. I uh, really appreciate it. Thank and, you. Uh, keep hope alive. Yeah, thanks very much. Okay, so Keith Whittington has uh, left the studio, and um, I hope that was helpful to people. I, I learned some things. Um, I did not know that the stuff about various state constitutions having um, like requirements for impeachment only after you left office, which I think is actually really interesting. Um, and um, And, you know, I think these kinds of issues about the, the impeachment stuff are really uh, useful to discuss because they help you understand what the founding fathers, they're sort of a great sort of die marker for explaining the vision of what the founding fathers were, you know, absent the politics of all of this. I just think it's interesting and important stuff. Um, so I, I just wanted to address um, and um, the the podcast from... Uh, Friday, um, without getting all emotional, um, um, again, uh, I did not plan on all of that. Um, and, um, and I really do appreciate greatly the response from a lot of people. It's been really kind of remarkable, some very moving and, and heartfelt and, and, um, important and I have people telling me stories about loss in their own lives and how they see family and how this helped them and all the rest. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for all of the support and consideration and remarkably few people. And for particularly for this day and age, were jackasses about it. Um, I don't, you know, so I didn't plan on doing all that. And there were lots of things I wanted to say that I, I couldn't get through. And when I, I never listened to the podcast, but I said to, to uh, Nick and Caleb that they should, that I defer to them if they wanted to take the whole thing out, they could have, um, I just deferred to their judgment about it because I, I couldn't listen to it again and I didn't want it to seem exploitative. And apparently they edited some of the more egregious stuff out, but apparently left it pretty much in, you know, largely intact. And, um, and so anyway, maybe we can do a podcast about, you know, loss and family or that kind of thing at a later date when I'm better able to talk about it in a normal way. Um, I certainly don't want to become the Bernie Birnbaum of podcasting. Um, Bernie Birnbaum being the John Turturro character from Miller's Crossing who always gets out of trouble by just openly weeping. Um, but, uh, I just wanted to say I, I'm, I'm really grateful to, uh, the feedback I've gotten about all of it. And, um, um, and that's it really. So, uh, we're going to try to get back on a normal schedule around here. I'm in, I'm in deep discussions with, uh, one Jack Butler, 
to return as a guest on this podcast uh, because we're coming up on the one year anniversary since he left for NR. And um, uh, it, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, it's moved beyond negotiating the size of the, the shape of the table stage, but you know, there's just a lot of factors to consider. And, um, but hopefully we'll make that happen sometime this month. And um, other than that, I'll see you guys next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Sure.